0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm very happy to say we have Waitman Bourne on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Marching into Darkness, the Wehrmacht and the Holocaust in Belarus. As I was telling Waitman in the pre-interview, I have studied the Holocaust in the Soviet Union for about 20 years now and one of the things I can tell you is that our picture of it is much more detailed and also some of the fundamental questions that we were asking 20 years ago now have new answers and i would say that uh, waitman has contributed to that revision of what we uh, thought we knew 2025 20, years ago and we will get to that in due time but i have to say this is a very enlightening book some parts of it are quite disturbing obviously given the topic but waitman's done a terrific job of explaining really what uh, the wehrmacht had to do with this aspect of um, the Holocaust. And so it definitely bears reading uh, if you are interested in the topic. So, Waitman, let me congratulate you on the book and welcome you to the show.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really Absolutely. excited to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah
0: well, it's my pleasure. So could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I'm from Virginia. I went uh, undergraduate at uh, the United States Military Academy at West Point. Um and I served uh, in the Army for five years after that as a cavalry officer. Um, got out of that in 2005 and went to graduate school at uh, the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where I was most, most fortunate to have uh, Chris Browning as my advisor, which is a, a very rare a very rare treat for an, uh, for an academic. Um, and it was there that I, that I started working on this book. Um, I've always been interested in history. My family, as I always say, is sort of... We're the ones that go to the museum and read everything on the wall, <laughs> and spend you know hours there. My my father, and my mom, both interested in that. Um, so I sort of grew up living in the world of history, and it's something that I've very been very much excited in, excited about. And um, so when I when I got out of the army, I decided you know I wanted to do history. I wanted to be an academic, and uh, that's sort of how I got into being a professional historian. Um, and I, I finished it at Chapel Hill, and I had a visiting uh, position at Loyola University in New Orleans. And then I was very, very fortunate um, to have uh, the first uh, Lewis and Francis Blumkin Professor of Holocaust Genocide Studies and Assistant Professor of History, so it's kind of a bizarre position in that sense, at the University of Nebraska uh, in Omaha here. And so I'm really excited to be able to be working on, on my topic um, and genocide in a larger sense and also with all the outreach and community, community work there. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the short, the short, short bio of, of where I'm coming from.
0: Mm-hmm. What drew you to German history and particularly the history of the Holocaust and even more particularly the, the role of the German army in the Holocaust?
1: Well, I think I would certainly credit my parents um, with my interest in the Holocaust. Um, when my, my father was in Germany um, in the late 60s, early 70s with the army army. And uh, one of the first things he would do with anybody that came to visit him uh, was take them to Dachau. He thought that any, any American visiting Germany um, should should go to Dachau first, um, to sort of see that and see the other side of, of, of a very beautiful and, and wonderful country. Um, and so I remember going there when I was very young, when my parents went back and took me to Europe. Um, in a more, more specific sense, um, when I was doing my undergraduate work, I was taking a class in imperial and Nazi Germany, and I had, to write, uh, I had to write a paper. And I wasn't really sure what topic I wanted to write on. Um, and my father sent me an article. He's a doctor, and he sent me an article from the Journal of the American Medical Association on the euthanasia program, the T4 mm-hmm. and, the, and the, the killing program there in, in Nazi Germany. And I, I was really fascinated by this. You know, I, The fundamental question sort of appears as um, how does a group of people whose first dictum really is to do no wrong End up becoming involved, essentially, in, in murdering those mm-hmm. into their care, and so that turned into my my, my senior thesis, um, which is what I was, uh, which I was working on there. And I went to the Holocaust Museum as undergraduate, which was fantastic to do some research there in the archives. Um, but when I got to graduate school and I, I met with my advisor, as a, as a good advisor does, he sort of asked me the question: Well, what is it that interests you in the Holocaust in, in general? Not necessarily. Specific area, and for me, really, it's trying to understand how it is that relatively normal people become involved in this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because my position, not surprisingly, I suppose, is that most people who get involved in genocide um, are not sort of uh, mentally ill, mm-hmm. and they're not they're not sociopaths. Um, there's been a lot of very fantastic scholarship done on the T four program and on the eugenics program. Um, but there's been less work done on the army, um, on the Wehrmacht, um, in the Holocaust, particularly at the level that I'm that I want to look at. And uh, my advisor suggested, and I, I think it's a great suggestion, that given my my personal background, that I might be able to to lend some insight into that. And then I was fortunate enough—we can talk about this later, I guess—to uh, stumble across uh, several related cases in the archives that that led me into Belarus.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So
1: uh, talk to us a little bit about
0: the um, historiography of this question from roughly the you know, really even during the war uh, to the point at which you pick up the trail. What did uh, I always say right thinking people, because these are people who are opinion makers, think about the participation of the Wehrmacht in the Holocaust prior to really the advent of perpetrator studies.
1: Well, I think um one of the places to start, that's a great question. I think one of the places to start is Nuremberg. Um, at the Nuremberg Tribunal, the SS was deemed to be a criminal organization writ large. So therefore membership in that organization, no matter really what you did, could could term you as a criminal. The Wehrmacht escaped this. Um, the leadership was tried, but as an organization, um, it sort of wasn't tarred with that same that same brush. Um this makes sense from a certain perspective because if you think about somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 million Germans served in the army at some point or in the armed forces. I use the Wehrmacht as sort of a shorthand for the army in this sense but um, really that also includes uh, the Luftwaffe and potentially the Kriegsmarine if you want to look at it that way. But in any case that's a large number of people Um, that's a lot of fathers, brothers, uncles um, sons and to sort of paint them with the you know the Holocaust brush, the Nazi uh, Nazi brush, uh, would be to make a lot of Germans very, very uncomfortable. Um, so even at even at the very beginning, there was sort of a an unwillingness to to turn this prism, turn this gaze on the Wehrmacht. Um, then we can add in a couple of other factors. One is that uh, the Cold War starts up, which makes Germany, of course, a very important ally, or at least West Germany, an important ally for the United States. And, uh, you know, continuing to sort of prod away at or poke away at, at the army um, was not something that would endear us to the German government and to the German people. So that was one sort of reason to sort of not uh, pro- not uh, follow this, this lead. In addition, uh, we needed, in a sense, the expertise of many of these high-level guys, the generals, who had fought the Red Army because, you know, that was now on our radar as the new enemy. And so we allowed many of them to come over to the United States and tell us what they had learned fighting the Red Army, um, which led to many different memoirs. Uh, one that I always like to point out is Von Monstein's Lost mm. Victories, yeah. um, which the title itself sort of explains uh, the, the tenor of these memoirs, which tended to be all about uh, what I like to call guns and trumpets and who's, who's taking what hill when and tactics and that kind of thing and remaining cognizantly and and consciously uh, aloof from any of sort of the dirty details of Nazi genocidal policy in the East. And so in that sense, we get a certain, a very cleansed and sterile view of what the army does. You know, the the army fights the Red Army. um, It fights against often impossible odds. And so there is, in the United States, um, even today, I think there's a sort of bizarre admiration for Mm -hmm. the Wehrmacht in a sense, the sort of last stand against impossible numbers, and they, and they fought very well in that sense. Um, and, and so that leads to sort of a warped view, I think, of the Wehrmacht. Um, and then, from a judicial perspective, very few uh, officials in the Wehrmacht, very few officers and men are tried, um, particularly after 1949, when, when the German government takes over those prosecutions. And so there develops this sort of uh, what's called the myth of the Queen Wehrmacht, um, which is this idea that the German army was a sort of apolitical institution uh, whose job was to defend the country and fight against a very real enemy in the Red Army um, and defend, you know, the homeland from the ravages of the Red Army. And this was, of course, supported in a certain sense um, unintentionally by the behavior of the Red Army when it invades uh, Germany and um, participates in a, in a mass rape of, of German women. And so those who want to take this position in the Queen Wehrmacht and say, see, look, uh, the German army was sort of saving us from all of this. Um, and this intentionally overlooks uh, lots of other ways in which the German army was a willing sort of uh, participant in, in the Nazi genocidal project. And just to bring us up to sort of the more modern period, um, there are a couple sort of events that... Um, raise awareness, I guess, is the way to put it. And one of the most important is the Wehrmacht Exhibition, which took place in beginning in 1995. And it was um, a traveling exhibition that went around Germany and Austria. And the goal of it was to show the ways in which uh, ordinary German soldiers and the German army itself were knowledgeable about and complicit in the Holocaust um, and other sort of war crimes and atrocities on the Eastern Front. And this this exhibition is really for the for the German people, for the public, uh, was really the f- the first confrontation with this topic. I mean, scholars have been working on this, um, particularly at the upper levels, looking at generals and this kind of thing for a while. Um, You're know, beginning even with with Raoul Hilberg and some other folks, but for the public, this was really the first time that it was sort of put in their face. And as a result of this, uh, a lot of the documentation that was chosen for the exhibition uh, was intentionally inflammatory. Uh, it was cherry-picked to show, you know, and it's all true, I mean, it's not, this isn't a fabrication, but um, it was chosen to show sort of the worst of the worst. And so it generated a lot of heat perhaps, but not a whole lot of light sometimes. And then uh, it suffered from um, very, very, very small areas of attribution, three or four photographs out of thousands were misattributed to the German army when they were, in fact, Ukrainian militia, and so it had to be redesigned and um, and then reopened. Re, uh, but that, that was the first real uh, sort of exposure the Germans had. But I think even now, there is a certain reticence to examine um, what these men may have experienced um, mm-hmm. during the war.
0: <clears throat> One question I had while I was reading the book was... And you do mention this. What it concerns the treatment of Soviet POWs. Even if you take the Holocaust out of the question—that is, the murder of Jews and Gypsies and so on and so forth—the genocidal campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I know, everybody knew that the Wehrmacht, once they had control of these hundreds of thousands, millions of Soviet soldiers, starved them to death. And I don't—I don't know how this was avoided in in the prosecution of uh, of of people in the Wehrmacht, I, I don't understand why there weren't trials or why the Soviets didn't stand up and say, "No, the Wehrmacht is a criminal organization." Because, I mean, it was really just totally well documented. There were lots of people that would say, "Yeah, sure, we captured six hundred thousand Soviet troops around Smolensk, and two hundred thousand came away."
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a great a great question uh, and a probing question. Um, there probably are a couple of reasons, um, and I think this this applies in a certain sense to the Holocaust itself in the Soviet Union, there was a certain reticence in the West to really recognize or study that topic, uh, because, you know, we were anti-Soviet, we were, mm-hmm. that that would lend, you know, some sort of sympathy to the Soviet Union, you know, in the sense that they, to recognize their suffering, which in a certain empirical sense was greater than anybody else in Europe during mm-hmm. the war. Um, as far as the, the POWs go, I think, of course, the, the army's line is a uh, we just took all these prisoners, and we weren't prepared to handle them and so it was sort of this regrettable regrettable in, you know incident of war, you know the fog of war, but of course that's not true they, yeah. they, they planned yeah. they planned to have no to have no plan
0: yeah, one castle uh, schlocked after another, I mean that was in the plan, right I mean they were going to encircle all these people, and they were going to take them, and then they were going well, they were going to starve them to death
1: <laughs> yes I mean and even more specifically the plan they had plans for how are we going to deal with the p o w s and these, the, the, these plans said things like, you know, they were only going to be allowed to eat horse flesh, and they can only use captured Russian medical supplies. You know, um, there's a, a memo from one of the army commanders uh, refusing to allow his rail cars to be used to transport to the POWs because yeah. it, it made them dirty, you know, things like this. So, there, you know, it's a very, it was a very conscious decision. And then there's, of course, Hitler's famous comment, kind and that yeah. you know, these are not, these are not sort of fellow warriors that once you capture them, you can sort of relate to each other. Uh-huh. They've sort of forever been tarred with the the brush of, of Bolshevism, which I think gets to another larger point that I like to sort of highlight, already I think my book highlights in a certain sense, which is this idea of a, of a Nazi genocidal project um, in which the Holocaust figures prominently, but, you know, the, the Soviet POWs fall into that, the Soviet people fall into that, mm-hmm. the Slobs fall into that. You know, the, this is, the, the Nazis planned a sort of massive project of, of demographic engineering in the mm-hmm. East.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so then if we could go on from the POWs, there's also even before the POWs, there's the famous Kamizarbefel, you know, this thing about shooting basically anybody with a red star in their chest. I mean, again, that's again, I, I don't know how I, I guess what I'm driving at here is that, that the defenders of the Wehrmacht, even before the exhibition and before your fantastic research, just didn't have a leg to stand on.
1: No, I think I think that's true. And um I think you know. In some in some sense, I think the Soviets took care of that with the people they caught. I mean, you know, the the massive numbers of German soldiers that end up in captivity until you know the latest sort of 1955. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is an interesting question, and I, and I don't necessarily know the answer why they didn't push harder. Of course, the the, the Russians at Nuremberg just wanted to execute everybody.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, and the Commissar is a great sort of lead-in to some of these to this setup, uh, this this preparation for for Barbarossa. And one of the other orders in there that's even more shocking to me is is sort of the the guidelines for the behavior of the troops, which basically says for all crimes that you would be prosecuted for elsewhere in Europe, you will not be prosecuted for in the Soviet Union. I mean, essentially, this is a, you know, do whatever you want. Uh, It's a carte blanche to behave however you want to, as long as your behavior doesn't sort of detract from the military mission or, or contribute or destroy sort of good order and discipline, which I think is a really key aspect of, of mm-hmm. the mentality that goes into East, Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And, and this goes toward the thesis about, it's Omar Bartov's thesis about barbarization. We'll talk about it in a little while, but you know, I, I was always a little bit skeptical of it because it, it seems to suggest that certain conditions give rise to certain actions, and I guess they do in a rough sense, but we've seen those conditions in a lot of places and they didn't give rise to, to, to mass murder. Um, it definitely was the case that Something prompted uh, soldiers of the Wehrmacht to participate in atrocities and mass murder. I'm not sure it was barbarization, but we can talk about that in a little while. So I want to begin the discussion of actual Wehrmacht complicity in uh, a place where you don't begin. I think you don't begin. I'm sorry to say uh, actually in Poland in September 1939. Is it the case? And I think it is the case that there we we have found cases of uh, Wehrmacht units uh, committing atrocities in the Polish campaign in 39. Is, Is it is that right?
1: Yes, there, there are some. Um, one of the most famous is in Czestochowa, um, which is actually very well documented in photographs. Um, and, and they are doing this. Um, this also sort of goes back. Uh, Isabel Hall wrote a great book, uh, Absolute Dis- Absolute Destruction, I think so what it's called, um, where she shows that the German army has a, a long sort of institutional history of violence against civilians. Um, and, uh, you know, they... they They have this ideal in their head that occupied territories will be perfectly calm, and when they're not, as they never will be, they overreact, um, and civilians are often the target of this. Mm -hmm. And of course, this this happens in World War One, and has only recently sort of gotten the attention it deserves because a lot of it was overblown as Allied propaganda. Mm -hmm. Um, In in Poland, I think, you know, certainly there were atrocities. Some of them are related to, you know shots being fired and then rounding up the Jews and shooting them as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these very flimsy, you know, so- certainly not legal reasons, but things like that. One of the things that, one of the experiences in Poland, I think that's most important, particularly in the context of the book, is that there are a couple generals. Um, General uh, Blaskowitz is one of the most important, who really complain in a very real sense about what the Einsatzgruppen, and of course the Einsatzgruppen are, have an iteration in Poland as well. Mm-hmm. And, and he actually complains, um, pretty vociferously about these atrocities that are going on, Um, and of course this ends his career very quickly, but I think why it's important as we move forward is the the Nazi authorities, the SS, have decided to discover that they really need to coordinate better with the army. Mm -hmm. They need to let the army know what they're going to be doing and sort of how they're going to be related and, and who's supporting who. And set this down all beforehand so they don't have these sort of unfortunate disagreements where certain members of the German army, of course, this still is not the majority. Um, but there were a few who said, you know, look, this is this is out of line. At the very least, this is just out of line from a sort of civility, uh, laws of war sort of standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important precursor to this. And um, there have already been uh, some great historians. Uh, Alex Rossino wrote a book. Um, And I think, uh, I'm forgetting, Jochen Boller also wrote a book um, about Poland as a precursor to sort of Barbarossa and to Mm -hmm. the Holocaust, um, which which lay out in many ways lots of the crimes Mm -hmm. they've committed. I might also point out, uh, before we move on, an interesting piece. Uh, There's a book by Raphael Scheck, um, Hitler's African Victims, where he showed that the Wehrmacht in 1940 in France um, treated French black colonial soldiers differently than everybody Mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. In other words, executed them, Um, which is another sort of racialized treatment of POW that I think uh, think is telling. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. So that's the first case I wanted to talk about. The second case, and I really like this in your book, is maybe I'm making too much of it, but I think you suggest that this notion that, uh, or it's a pretext, I don't know what to call it, that mass murder could really be hidden under the rubric of anti-partisan activity was sort of worked out in the Balkans before they invaded the Soviet Union. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think uh, Serbia is a, is a great sort of example uh, for both comparison and contrast. Um, to give sort of a brief overview, um, unlike as we probably talk about in a little bit, uh, at least as I argue in the period that, that I work on in the book. Unlike in Belarus, uh, Serbia had a very real sort of partisan movement, Serbia, Croatia, Slovakia, that area. Um, Mainly communists, but a very active sort of insurgency was going on. And uh, the German army's response, as it always has been, was sort of reprisals and hostage-taking and this sort of thing. Um, And, of course, they choose Jews as sort of a ready population to draw their hostages from, which is not a particularly... um, Utilitarian uh, motive because the Jews, by and large, weren't the ones who were being the partisans. So by killing them, they weren't really hurting the partisans in any sense. Um, but that would be the you know that would be the modus operandi would be that a German soldier or, or unit would be ambushed and uh, they would round up the usual suspects, which in this case meant the Jews and execute them. There is a, a uh, this is with scare quotes, but there is a great series of photographs. Um, of a a Wehrmacht signal unit, so like a communications company, um, executing Jews as part of this reprisal policy. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's interesting about it, if you want to look at sort of the the higher level condoning of this, um, I think the original guideline was between 50 and 100 um, Jews or or hostages were to be shot for every German soldier. And um, and Chris Browning has shown this and some other folks um, that the officers who chose the, the higher percentage or the higher number were the ones that got promoted, and the ones that yeah. sort of just went with the party line were the ones that uh, got shunted off someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's an important precursor, and, and it'd be nice to find some more textual sort of experiences or, or you know, uh, transfers of personnel that might have transmitted that knowledge. I haven't found that, which is not certainly that to say that doesn't exist.
0: Right, right. So that's interesting in the Balkans because there we see... A false equivalency, but an equivalency nonetheless between Jews and partisans. And then after June 22nd, 1941, we add a third thing, and that is uh, uh, all partisans are Jews, or no, all Jews are partisans, and all Jews are also Bolsheviks. And that's right. even, yeah, and that, it's really when those things come together. And this wasn't unique, I should say, to the Germans. I, I've read a book recently that a lot of Poles believe this as well, uh, that in fact, Jews were all Bolsheviks and were um, uh, sort of, uh, they were partisans for the Red Army after the Germans had come across. In Absolutely. Yeah. I
1: mean, and this is, and this, is a, this is a trope that precedes the Nazis. Um, you know, this is a, you know, ever since there was communism, uh, the Jews have often been mm-hmm. sort of painted as, um, that's their sort of natural political bent. Of course, for the Nazis, they're also capitalists, so they sort of play both sides. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's it's uh, completely um, incoherent. But it makes no sense. But no. There, you know, it has this, this this small kernel of apparent truth, which is that there were, and you know, this you know better than I, as a Russianist, there were prominent members of the communist leadership who could be termed Jewish. They wouldn't consider themselves to be yeah. Jewish, but they could be termed Jewish. And so, of course, you know the 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 minor 1% proves the rule for the Nazis that, therefore, mm-hmm. the Jews are behind are behind communism, behind Bolshevism as a way, you know, as a way to sort of feed off of the countries that they're involved in. And um, one of the things that I think is really important with this, and I don't I don't want to oversell the, the connection between the, the Jews and the partisans, um, but I think this is one way for the Nazis to make their, their propaganda and their anti-Semitic policies a little bit more palatable to people who may not be as motivated to to participate in anti-jewish actions because I think we can we can agree that most Germans and probably most German soldiers had a very real fear and antipathy towards Bolsheviks and towards towards communism after you know after the end of World War one and and all the upheaval that that caused mm-hmm. And so if you can try to meld these and this is kind of what I argue if you can, if you can meld these these categories together, so first you say that all Jews are Bolsheviks or all Bolsheviks are Jews either way or all Jews are Bolsheviks, excuse me um, that's a, a relatively easy sell and it, it plays into a long history of, of propaganda that uh, and anti-Semitism that as you rightly point out is not y- unique to to Germany or Poland or France and this is a European sort of phenomenon if you can do that um, and then of course all Bolsheviks are partisans that makes perfect sense um, then if you, if you can then sort of make this This leap of logic to say that, therefore, all Jews are either partisans or partisan supporters, um, which is one of these ways that that the Nazis use this great euphemistic language. Um, Then you have essentially militarized an entire ethnic group uh, Mm -hmm. as some, as a, and again, scare quotes, a legitimate military target, um, which I think I think is important for some people because it helps them perhaps rationalize what they're doing. Um, as as Gerhard Weinberg pointed out uh, to me once, you know, of course, when they're shooting children and shooting pregnant women, um, they can't truly believe most of them probably that that they're partisans. You know, the, at some point they they're they're forced to recognize this, but the mind is capable of doing lots of of gymnastics to try to alleviate uh, this kind of you know trauma. And I think that the anti-partisan argument is one way, was one way for German soldiers to do that.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, in materials that were created by the Wehrmacht prior to June 22nd, is there anything that we find that is, I I don't want to use the word smoking gun, but smoking gun, (laughs) is there anything there that says, uh, okay, we want you to go hunt down Jews under the pretext of uh, anti-partisan activities?
1: Well, one of the... One of the documents, um, not as specific as as such as the way you phrased it, but one of the documents um, that's issued in the guidelines for the Order of the Troops, uh, it says something to the effect that um, ruthless action must be taken against Bolshevik agitators, saboteurs, snipers, and Jews. <laughs> so and I when I'm, math, teaching, that's, that's when I'm teaching when I'm teaching this you know I always I always point out that one of these things is not, not like the like other <laughs> that's you what know, I was going to say too these other these three things are behaviors and yeah. then one is a, yeah. a a group of people and and certainly there's also uh, remember you know remember uh, there's a there's a sort of comment in there remember what it was like in 1918 what communism brought you and and the Jews are constantly conflated with communism so there's sort of an Soldiers, I think, would have recognized, to a certain extent, the, the blaming that goes on there,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, and the, the Germans already are very concerned about this partisan possibility, um, and this is something that that I can touch on for a little bit mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's important. Um, you know, we have this image. I had this image before I started this research of of defiance, right, the Bielski brothers, the, right. the Germans being afraid to drive. Around town, around the countryside because they would you know be be attacked by these these partisans in the snow and gunned down mm-hmm. you know they'd probably lost control and this is at least I would argue from what I've seen so far this this doesn't take place until much much later essentially it's this takes place after the period that I'm talking about in the book um, in the period of ni- nineteen forty one and and nineteen forty two up until maybe the summer or fall of 1942, there really isn't a partisan movement Mm -hmm. as such um, for a couple reasons. One is that Stalin uh, never thought that he would have to surrender ground to anybody, so therefore there was no need to learn how to do this. And I should point out that the Russians have a great history of of being quite good at at, Mm -hmm. insurgent warfare, all the way back to the Cossacks. Um, But he also killed off anybody that knew how to do this um, during the purges because this is not a skill that Stalin really wanted people to have domestically, you know, mm-hmm. this ability to sort of uh, lead a counter, lead, lead an insurgency. Mm-hmm. So the Soviets weren't really prepared from a from a sort of bureaucratic perspective. And then, you know, the, the Germans seized so much ground so quickly that there was very little time to sort of set anything up beforehand. So what you have left are small groups of NKVD who parachute in and try to start this. You know, Stalin calls for this in July already. Um, And Hitler uses this as a great example, a great reason to say, say, okay, now we can take all the gloves off because Stalin has called on the the Russian people to rise up. Mm -hmm. Um, But for all intents and purposes, you have these small groups of NKVD, these destruction battalions, which are another small group that were designed to go around and and blow up bridges and such. And then large numbers of Soviet soldiers who didn't get caught up in the the Kesselschlacht or who had escaped, and many of whom were trying to either just go home, and many took off their their uniforms and tried to go home. Um, Many were trying to get back to Soviet lines, um, and then a small few were sort of setting themselves up to to do some sort of insurgent warfare. But the the Germans are preparing essentially for a partisan warfare that doesn't exist at the time, I would argue, or or they're preparing for a partisan war that they sort of create Mm -hmm. by their own actions.
0: Mm -hmm. I see. So let's actually go to uh – The invasion itself, so it's June 22nd, and the Wehrmacht uh, crosses the border. They make very good ground, and these are frontline troops. They make such good ground that uh, they are suddenly given the task of administering or controlling uh, really quite large uh, territories in what is Belarus. And one of the things you point out in the book that I didn't really know anything about is they take, I guess, what I'd call second-line troops or divisions, and they put them in charge of these areas, and they disperse the units around these areas. Areas. Can you talk a little bit about how they arranged the occupation of these places? And also, at what point did the military occupation time out, or did it ever?
1: Uh, this is a good, a good question. and it, So it changes um, over time, because parts of the Soviet Union are earmarked as sort of future colonies of, of uh, Germany. So you have the Reichskommissariat Ostland, which is the Baltic states, the Reichskommissariat Weissroutinien, white russia which is essentially belarus and then Mm reich's commissariat ukraine um but to get back to the the original point of the question um you have these frontline units that go through um and i I should be very clear that you know in in my work i'm looking at these second line Mm -hmm. these second line units um i might argue because most of the frontline units are too busy actually fighting to to get involved in some of these aspects So i would say that most of the army had an opportunity to be involved in some aspect of the Nazi genocidal project. You've mentioned the Soviet POWs um, or the Commissar Befell. I mean, this is also being carried out by frontline Mm -hmm. soldiers. Um, There's been some great work done on who's actually doing the Commissar Befell because, of course, after the war, the generals say, well, we got the order, you know, and we passed it down, but that was just for show and we didn't really carry it out. But um, Felix Romer has done some great work on literally running down the numbers and saying, actually, these guys were killing them. So it's sort of a question of of, of, of opportunity and location, um, but then in, in any sense, so you have the front line area, um, and then you have what are known as sort of the army group rear areas, which are these massive um, swaths of land um, until you get to sort of politically appropriated terrain that's been incorporated in some sense into the third rank, and it's generally speaking these second line divisions, slightly older. Um, I mean these aren't you know the Landwehr; these aren't the militia, but they're just—you know—they t- they t- tend to be a little older and a little less experienced. Get tasked with administering these areas as the as the front line troops move forward. And then on the ground, what this looks like generally is that there is what's called an Ortskommandantur, a or sort of a a military government office in in these towns and villages, um, who reports to sort of a higher level civil military government. Um, organization, but at the lower level, I mean, these these are just the regular officers that are also fulfilling the secondary task of um, administering uh, Nazi policy in these towns. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in August, uh, part of sort of Minsk or sort of Belarus gets split, uh, and then part of it officially falls under the Reichskommissariat Ostland. So part of the the uh, units in the book are part of the actions in the book that I describe um, take place under in the army group rear areas, and part of them take place later in what's called the Reichskommissariat Ausland in a, a sort of political area. All done by German soldiers, but they're um, they're under sort of different different leadership. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So could, we, we can move forward now to talk about the very first incident that I think I think you talk about in detail, and that is at Krupki. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you explain to us what happened there?
1: Uh, yeah, so Krupke is a little village. Um, I was fortunate enough to visit it uh, during my research. Uh, it's on the, the main highway from Minsk East, um, I think it's 60 miles or so east of Minsk. Um, we drove out there to visit. Um, it is. It, it was a sort of smaller market town, had a, a large Jewish population of around a thousand Jews, um, but as I said, it's on the main logistical supply route east. Um, and that's how this, the, the unit that gets involved, the 354th Infantry Regiment, um, gets involved in this um, in this operation because it's stationed there. Um, one day in, in September, um, sometime before the 18th, uh, a, a unit of the Einsatz Commandos, the Einsatz Group, and these SS mobile killing squads shows up. Uh, the commander shows up, a guy named Werner Schernemann who is a particularly vile but interesting guy, shows up and he meets with the commander of this unit, the battalion commander, um, a guy named Major Valdo. Um, And this is, of course, we can talk sources later, but this is corroborated by a bunch of the soldiers who were questioned after the war who remember this meeting. Um, It's unclear exactly what is said, but he goes into the office, he meets with the guy for a while, um, and essentially what they're doing here is they're laying out... uh, you know responsibilities during an upcoming action by the Einsatzgruppe, by in this case by Commando Eight, um, tile commander or, or sort of subcommando Schernemann, named after this SS man. Um, he Schernemann leaves. What's I think really interesting and really telling is that a lieutenant from the unit then rides out of the town on a horse with uh, one of his uh, soldiers, and they go and they essentially find the killing site. Uh, they scout out the location for the killing site, which is about a half a mile or so north of town, in um, near a swamp in a forested area that was used for harvesting peat. So there were already potentially sort of trenches or some kind of excavations there. But he finds this and and goes back and reports this to his to his leadership. So here already you have. Um, a really interesting mode of complicity. One of the things that I really wanted to show in the book uh, was what complicity looks like on the ground, and that's something I think we'll, we'll probably talk about, but it's a very vague term, especially when it's applied at the higher levels, you know. Um, so in any case, uh, the next day, uh, the, this German army unit um, surrounds the town from the outside um, to prevent anyone, any Jews from fleeing, so in the early morning hours, they, they go out and they surround the town. Um, and then a separate company goes into the town then and assists in the rounding up of the Jews from their houses. This is something that the soldiers don't often talk about. So it's unclear how deeply they were involved and how much the SS was involved. But when we consider that the, man, the SS, the Einsatzgruppen, just have a real manpower problem, it's likely that the German soldiers are involved in pulling people out of their houses. And this is... Uh, in many ways a very traumatic event for them and i'm going to use this word traumatic frequently and i want to be clear that this is not sympathy for the soldiers but that it is an, a place in which they are experiencing sort of um, more stressful emotional contact with the people that are involved in um, and again this is not to sympathize with them but mm-hmm. one of the reasons they don't talk about this i think is because you know they are literally involved in dragging elderly and sick people out of their beds sometimes shooting them in their houses um, and, and this, for them, is a very, a very close sort of interaction with things that they sort of know are wrong. Um, the Jews are then are rounded up and are guarded in the center of town. So there's sort of a smaller cordon in the center of town, on the marketplace, where they are guarded by the German army. Again, um, the mayor uh, or one of the SS. Uh, leaders, it's unclear exactly, it reads out a list of names, so clearly there was a list of who they were looking for, and then uh, they began to be marched out of town along the main road to this killing site. Um, those that can't walk are driven in army trucks, so the army is supplying vehicles for this, and the army is supplying men to walk alongside uh, these shoes and prevent them from escaping. Um and this is all very well documented, there are men who admit doing this, say this this is what I was doing. There's a very poignant moment uh, in one of these testimonies where this German soldier is describing his actions as as, as a guard marching them to the killing site. And he says that a small child's pants fell down around its ankles and it was in danger of being trampled by everybody else because they were pushing them along very quickly. And so he allowed the mother to pull the kid out of line and pull his pants back up, but then he put him back in line and kept on going, you know, so it's a very sort of disturbing moment. Once they got to the killing site, um, the Jews were forced to sort of, after they gave up their valuables and whatnot to the SS, they were forced to sit in this field, which is still there today, um, within, if not sight, certainly sound distance of of the the actual trenches, the killing site, the killing trenches. And so they knew what, they know what's going on. And German soldiers are guarding them there, and the German soldiers finally are also guarding the killing site itself. They formed a smaller cordon around the trench to prevent anyone from escaping. And then lastly, I should point out sort of the the grayest area in the research here, and this is partly due to sources, um, is that uh, they did participate in the actual shooting itself. Um, And there are a couple ways in which I argue, at least in the Kripke killing, that this this happened. Um, The first is uh, there was bad weather approaching um, a couple, couple factors in this. Bad weather is approaching. Van der Schrenemann, the SS man, um, by all accounts, was very good at what he did, but didn't like it to take a long time. He liked to get it over with as quickly as possible. Um, it's potentially possible that his men are running out of ammunition, um, and so they sort of roped the local, the nearest German soldiers into doing this as well. That's one explanation. Another explanation is that. Um, one of the platoon leaders had actually asked the night before for volunteers for an unpleasant task. And this is a euphemism that's repeated throughout, you know, the Holocaust as well. And that he had received volunteers who did this. Um, and that then this group also was rotated in to shooting these people, you know, at, at close range into this pit. Um, and, and then, you know, sort of after this is over, uh, local locals from Kripke are forced to co- cover the pit and the SS leave with all the valuables, the most of the valuables and whatever's left over is left over for the local Belarusians who I should, I should mention here um, that the, some sort of Belarusian police or militia likely also um, participated in this killing. But essentially that's that's sort of the layout um, of the Kripke killing which is the, the forced instance that I talk about in the mm-hmm. book.
0: So what does this tell us about uh, complicity at this stage, very early stage in both your story and the invasion of the Soviet Union,
1: um, this is a great question. I, I, I think it's very disturbing, um, and, and was a, to me a certain sense, in a certain sense, surprising, um, the initiative to which the initiative which some of these men displayed. Um, it's. A, I, I argue that it's sort of a. It's kind of like radiation. Um, Exposure builds up over time, and as the exposure builds up over time, the units become more complicit. Um, I could mention, and this is probably useful given our earlier conversation, that this unit had been involved in guarding a very large Soviet POW camp, um, in Drozdye, just outside of Minsk, 100,000 men surrounded by one, you know, a strand of barbed wire, which was conveniently placed outside of, or placed on the other side of a stream, so they couldn't get to water. And this unit had watched the Commissar Bethel being executed. They'd watched people being killed. They'd watched Jews being rounded up out of this camp. They had killed prisoners themselves trying to escape um, or who had escaped and been recaught. So there's a certain level of, of uh, exposure that builds up. On the other hand, for this unit, I think for the men, uh, this was a first. This was something new for them. And that may explain you know, why there wasn't why there was less sort of resistance and also less some of the more egregious forms of, of um, complicity that I talk about later in the book. Mm-hmm. Because they're just, in a certain sense, uh, overcome by the speed and tempo of these events that mm-hmm. they're they're involved in. Mm-hmm.
0: Were they offered the opportunity to opt out and do something else?
1: Um, they, so there, there wasn't, that I found, there wasn't really a moment... Uh, like the moment in Ordinary Men where a major trap sort of says, anybody who wants to step out can. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some men who say that the platoon leaders, for example, the guy who asks for volunteers is asking for volunteers. If you don't want to, you don't have to volunteer. Um, and there are men who who sort of try to refuse um, to participate. Um, many of them, many of these examples come from later later episodes that we can talk about. But in this instance, um, there are there a few who do this. Most sort of go along and do it. Do what they're supposed to do.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So the next moment in the book, I mean, you call this improvised murder. The next moment in the book, which I found fascinating, is the, I, I didn't know anything about this, the Megilov, uh conference. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this is, I, I think we all as historians are sort of searching for for something really new and exciting. And, and if, if there's anything in the book that, that I think um, might fall into that category, I think it might be Mogilev. Um which interestingly has been, it's been referenced before by other historians. So it's not, it's not totally new in that sense, but um, I was able to find sort of some more documentation and and look into this and then connect it with another case, which I thought was, was really exciting. Um, Just to give a brief, a brief summary of it. um, In late September, uh, I think the 24th to 26th of September, 1941, by the way, this is a, a little over a week and a half or so after with killing and Kripke. The commander of Army Group Center Rear, which is basically where all of this stuff takes place, calls for a meeting in which he wants uh, German officers with an experience in partisan warfare to come to this conference, share their ideas, you know, sort of brainstorm about how to how to fight the partisans. Of course, as I've mentioned, the partisan warfare itself is sort of non-existent at this point, so it makes you wonder. Um, but I found the, the list of attendees. Um, there are attendees from the units that have already been participating in this stuff and who will later be participating in killing themselves. The attendees are overwhelmingly lower level officers um, and overwhelmingly army. Um, one of the important sort of sessions, this is basically you know like an academic conference, they have sessions and different people pre- present. And one of the presenters is Arthur Neba, who was the commander of Einsatzgruppe B, who was at the time presiding over the murder of the Jews of Belarus. And the title of his of his presentation was uh, "The Jewish Question with particular regard to the anti-partisan movement." Um, and so I have the agenda, but I and the, but I don't have any minutes, so I don't we don't know exactly what he said. Um, but I think we can surmise, given what happens later, um, that he was interested in trying to get the army more involved in this. In this, um, in the Holocaust,
0: mm-hmm. and you can uh, infer that from what happens next, correct?
1: Exactly, and yeah. I, I want to point out, you know, one of the one of the other things they do at this conference, um, which is a very typical military sort of thing to do, is they they go out and they observe, sort of a sample operation, um, a sample anti-partisan operation, to show sort of this is how you do things, um, and if you read the the diary of the unit that actually carried this out, they say something to the effect of. Um, we didn't find any partisans in the village. We did find X number of Jews, and with the SD, i.e., with the Eintash Group, and we executed mm-hmm. uh, a large number of them. And so here they're having, you know, this is sort of the approved solution that's being shown to them. Um, and then after after the uh, the conference, at least in, in one of the divisions, and I went through, and, and this is just based off of their own reporting, the numbers of, of individuals who are captured and killed sort of skyrocket. And... Um, and I think this this is highly suggestive. But then the last reason, and this is something, again, that I've just been really lucky to find because historians, we rarely find this sort of thing. Um, on October 10th, so a little over two weeks after this conference, um, another battalion uh, farther east gets the order to kill all the Jews in its area. And the three commanders in uh, this battalion each have a different response. Uh, one of the commanders who is reportedly sort of an avowed Nazi, says sure, and does it. Uh, The second commander sort of hems and haws about it, and he asks for written confirmation, which he receives, and then he carries it out. But the third commander says no, he won't do it. And in his letter that he wrote to the German court after the war during the case, he says that there was a conference in Mogilev where the the topic was Jews and partisans, and that as a result of this conference, that's where this order came Mm -hmm. from, to kill all the Jews in his area, which is... I mean, we never find stuff like this. You know, so I was really happy to sort of be able to connect that then to the Khrushche killing, uh, which we actually have a court case on. And so I had lots of, of testimony and documentation of it.
0: Mm-hmm. So are you contending then that the Megilev conference uh, <clears throat> led to some sort of uh, firm relationship between the SD, that is the Einsatzgruppen, and, um, and uh, these, uh, these rear area Wehrmacht units about the treatment of Jews?
1: I think so. Um, I mean, like everything else in history, and also in, in the Holocaust, you know, there, we can sort of very rarely draw the direct line, you know, between between these sorts of things. There is a precedent to um, a, an oral mode of transmitting sort of Holocaust-related um, policy. So, for example, Himmler, the, 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 change, the shift in killing from. Uh, simply Jewish men of military age to men, women, and children can sort of be tracked by Himmler's visits and his conversations with the police battalions, for example, and and various SS and Einsatzgruppen Mm -hmm. units. And I would suggest that something happens similar at Mogilev. There's also an executive summary that's published after this conference, um, which is then distributed to everybody in in the Army Group Center rear, and it has sort of a disturbing paragraph at the end, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, but says something to the effect that, you know, decisions on, on life and death um, are difficult for uh, every soldier, but he who he acts correctly, who acts the most ruthlessly and with mm-hmm. disregard for his own sort of personal emotions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, I would argue that you don't need to tell this to soldiers that are fighting other soldiers, because when someone's shooting at you, you, you feel very little sort of
0: mm-hmm.
1: need to, to, to hem and haw about that. But mm-hmm. if you're trying to get them to do something out of their comfort zone, that 's important what I found even more interesting um, in the very end of the research I just randomly saw this when I was doing some reading is that that that, that paragraph was lifted verbatim and then published in another memorandum that was attributed to the order police mm-hmm. these police battalions who were really really tasked with killing Jews, uh, which I thought was an interesting sort of distri- distribution of of knowledge mm-hmm. but I think that that's certainly i think it 's certainly mm-hmm. something that happens and it becomes even more pronounced in some units so mm-hmm. the seven hundred seventh in Division uh, in Slonim and Novogrudek actually sort of develops a, a distribution of labor, where the wherein the German army will round up Jews in the countryside, allowing the SS to sort of focus on the larger population
0: centers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Since you mentioned both of them, uh, could you talk to us about the Slonim massacre and then the Novogrudek massacre? Is that the order in which they occur, or is it the other way around? I can't remember.
1: No, that's correct. The, okay. the Slonim is in is in November uh, November fourteenth. Okay, then let's start the, with Slonim. And Slonim. Um, is uh, a much, much larger city um, and had a very large Jewish population, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 or so. And on November 18th, um, I described November 14th, 10,000 of them were shot in one day. Um, the The German army unit there, the 6th company from the 707th, um, actually dug the, the, the pits, which is very interesting. i have never seen that before. And, um, And they participated in the shooting, they participated in all the other modes that I had mentioned before. Um, One of the things that I found sort of very disturbing is uh, they guard the pit at night uh, after the shooting, because uh, as often happens in these shootings in the East, as they go on and people get drunker and drunker, um, they don't do as well, and there are survivors. And many of the, the accounts we have from survivors about these killings are from people who literally crawled out of these pits mm-hmm. into the forest after the killing. And so these soldiers uh, have to spend the night there surrounding the gravesite. And there's a, one of these soldiers in his testimony after the war says that he was, he was really scared at one moment because somebody crawled out of the pit next to him, you know, and that, that was very frightening. Um, another said that he could hear, you know, voices underneath, underneath the bodies. Um, but they were ordered to do this, and so they they're they're guarding this pit. Um, some of them are robbing uh, the bodies. But what I found most disturbing is afterwards, the next morning, um, they went off on these patrols, you know, tracking blood trails through the forest like you would if you were a hunter uh, to find those who had been who had escaped, round them up, bring them back to the pit, and shoot them again. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was sort of very very damning um, because if you can. I think you can I think it's fair to make the argument that there's a certain level of compulsion uh, about being in the military, and so when someone says to go guard the town or do this, there's a certain level of compulsion that's inherent in that um but it'd be very easy to go on one of these patrols and not find anybody
0: yeah
1: you know and just come back and say you didn't find anybody. It's also very easy to not uh steal you know that's that's certainly not or no it was not an order it was a, a voluntary action and then um the rapes and, and sexual exploitation that take place that I talk about as well um, is certainly not ordered. And, and I think all of these things together are are sort of indicative of, a, of an increasingly sort of accepting mindset in the, in the army at a slower level. I mean, these guys are stealing clothing and sending it to their families uh, in Germany, which is sort of very disturbing. And Novogrudik, um is a similar kind of killing, um, a smaller number, somewhere around 5,000 um but a similar sort of participation by the Wehrmacht and a similar, um, you know, deeper level of complicity.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So I, I'm interested in the chain of command here, and I don't recall from the book. I'm sure you say exactly how it ran, but th- the SD couldn't order Wehrmacht units to do things, could they? I mean, they had to go. I don't understand how exactly the orders went.
1: Yeah, and this is this is very complex, um, and. It's, it's still complex for me, and I think that, that reflects sort of how it was on the ground. Um, just to give a brief example from Slonim. Um, so Slonim originally is, is you know part of the rear area, and so the army has control of it. And the Orts the sort of local military headquarters, is in charge of everything. And so this is, they're in charge of you know, provisioning, they're in charge of setting up uh, local authorities that will be friendly to the Germans, um, all of this sort of thing. Um, then, after August, um, the this area becomes part of the Reichs Kommissariat Westfriulien, which means it will fall under a Nazi civil administrator, a guy named Gerhard Ehren. Um, and so he shows up uh, with with not enough supplies, and, and half his people get sick and go home before we can even get started. Um, you know, they they're not sending the, the top people to, to Eastern Europe, um, but then he. You know, he and the army then have overlapping areas of of influence because the army will always have sort of security as its as its area of emphasis. But you know, given what we've talked about already, the sort of anti anti Jewish policy falls under this area. So, um, what you have is is a very and then of course you have the Einsatz Group and who answer to the Reichsführer SS and who answer to the to the higher SS and police leader for whichever area they're in. And so you have these three separate sort of chains of command um, that sometimes bring them into conflict, but more often than not, they, they sort of work it out and end up uh, working together. Um, I didn't find really an example of anybody refusing to participate on sort of uh, bureaucratic orders or saying, you, you don't have the right to tell me what to do. Um, they, they, they had this kind of conflict very often because they just didn't like each other. Um, the the German civil administrators who end up in Eastern Europe are often very loathsome kinds of people, um, and the, the officers very often don't like them. But that never really ends up inhibiting the, the execution of the Holocaust.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. The the um, last incident—not really incident—it's a practice that you deal with in the book is the uh, Jew hunts, the so-called Jew hunts. Can you talk a little bit about those? I think those show initiative, pure and simple.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the ways that I was trying to to conceptualize the book um, was as a sort of progression um, that begins with sort of an improvised mode of participation, which I sort of show in The Creepy Killing, where, you know, they're just kind of flying by the seat of their pants and, and working it out on their own, and then ends up with sort of what I call an internalization, that, that the, the German army, at least the units that I'm studying, internalized that uh, this is policy um, and this is what we're going to do. And I don't want to put words in their mouth and say they thought it was right, but that certainly it was allowed. And for those who were interested in killing Jews anyway, um, it was a carte blanche to do so. And so in the town of Shuchin, which I won't even attempt to spell because it's has multiple <laughs> C's and Zs and Y's in it. Um, but there is a, a company based there and they routinely out on what they call Jew hunts, um, which we which would also be called anti-partisan patrols. Um, of course, they're all riding in a truck and they pull up in a village and get out, which is not really how you capture partisans, yeah. uh, it's, it's not a very inconspicuous way of doing things. And so they would frequently, as a matter of policy, uh, kill Jews, you know, twos and threes and fours, wherever they find them, come back to the company headquarters, and the clerk himself, the company clerk admits this. Um, would report them as partisans killed. Mm-hmm. So you have the sort of body count thing. So they're reporting the the Jews as partisans, mm-hmm. and this is an open secret. Everybody knows. Everybody knows who's doing this and 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 why they're doing it and who they're doing it to. Um, and there is sort of a group of usual suspects in the unit who seem to be the the, the company or the platoon that always goes out and does this. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is also sort of vitally important um, from a sort of motivation standpoint because then you can see how that takes the onus off of anybody else for having to, to confront this decision of should we or should we not participate because mm-hmm. they're never faced with that because there are always other folks who are willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I see. Well, one of the things I appreciated about the end of the book, there are a couple of things and I'll come to the second in a moment, is that you attempt to address the question of representativeness of these units that you deal with because you only deal with, and I don't recall exactly how many, but it's two, three, or four Um uh, can you talk a little bit about how representative they
1: were? Yeah, I and mean, this is this is sort of the big question, the big R. Um, and I, I remember, you know, vividly as a graduate student, when I would read people's books, I'd always be like, "Yeah, but is this representative? You know, like, how do we know that this person's, you know, topic, uh, this person's subject is representative of the larger?" The larger whole, and now I find myself, you know, <laughs> on the other end of that, um, and, and rightly so, because you know, and people will point out, I, I, I suspect, and they'll be right, that you know, the German army was a huge organization with huge numbers of different types of units um, who had a wide variety of experiences, and and so I don't think I can ever say that this is representative of, of every unit in the German army, and there've been great books done on looking trying to to sort of categorize experience based on type of unit uh, and, and frontline or rear-area duty. With that being said, I think my conclusion in terms of representativeness is that um, there's very little that's extraordinary, demographically or otherwise, about these units. Um, that there was, and, and, I've, and I intentionally looked at at least uh, 10 or 13 other divisions, other units that were in this area or went through this area at some point. To try to get a feeling for, for this question, because I, I, I myself was concerned that you know I don't I don't want to, I don't want to be cherry picking either. You know the worst case scenario, and what I discovered was that many of these other units were were spouting some of the same propaganda, uh, and some of the same uh, arguments, and they were following some of the same policies, and that those that ended up uh, being in an occupation duty longer ended up becoming more complicit in in anti-Jewish measures almost by by natural course. Um, And so I I guess I suggest in terms of representativeness that um, certainly the institutional culture of the German army was such that given the opportunity uh, they would at least tend to become more complicit rather than less. Um, In other words they were prone to participating and this is of course not to say that they were Hitler's willing executioners or that they were all chomping at the bit to do this, but that the institutional culture, the situational mindset, um, the ideological pressures, all of these things that we sort of bandy about, which was more important, would tend to reinforce behavior that was more complicit than less. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me just given the nature of militaries as what at least one sociologist calls a kind of total organization where um, order and regimentation are really the they're really the, the sort of um, the, the the principal moments that you should find cons- uh, consistency across them. It seems to me the onus is on the people who think it's not representative. You see what I'm saying? It it, it I, I given that every unit is supposed to be like every other, right? I, I, <laughs> I think yeah, I think we need to turn the question around. Why wouldn't you think this is representative?
1: Well, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think the study that the study that I that hasn't been done yet. Um, and I think there are good reasons why it hasn't been done yet. But the study that I think really needs to be done is, is of the frontline units and trying these, because this is sort of the, the, the argument of the, the non-representativeness is, well, these aren't the frontline units. Yeah. And so if most of the German army is the frontline units, i.e. engaged in what we would call conventional combat, um, what are they doing? Are they participating or not? I, I'm not sure that necessarily is the most important question anyway, but, um, it is an important question. And I think we're hampered very much by the sources. Um, You know, one of the reasons why, and I will, I will point out that one of the units that I talk about in the book goes on uh, into, to to the closest thing it'll see to frontline duty, which is a large anti-partisan sweeps in 1942 and carries with it the same awful behavior um, and sort of murderous attitude that it does, that it had gained earlier. But um, as far as sort of the documents go, um, one of the reasons that this book sort of ends when it does in the, the spring of 42 is that most of the units that I talk about end up having to go to the front.
0: Yeah, this is the second part that I really liked about the book is that you didn't leave us uh, wondering what happened to these fellows. And there's a certain poetic justice. Concerning what happened to them,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, and I and I, and I they, like to, they get all chewed I like, up. <laughs> I like to point out that you know it's a lot harder to shoot people when they're shooting back. Yeah, uh-huh. um, but go and, ahead and tell us what
0: happened to them because it's really it ta- it tells you something about the Eastern Front because it's catastrophic.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a so there's a crisis in December uh, when the the German army fails to capture Moscow. There's a crisis, and then begins a series of of, Germ- of Soviet winter counteroffensives, and the German army then starts looking back to the rear. Salvage whatever you know most useful units you have, and in all of these security divisions um, that I talk about, uh, the most useful units are these second line divisions, these second line infantry regiments, because they're they are conventional units. You know they are designed for combat, and they get sent to the front and they get chewed up. I mean, you know, sometimes two two or three times over. Um, but they suffer and,
0: just absolutely horrendous casualty rates that, that, you know, to somebody who studied, say, for example, American military history, you just can't really wrap your mind around it.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, they, they're just completely destroyed. And then eventually they're completely destroyed again in 44. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I couldn't do the study that would have been right. probably even better, which would have been some kind of longitudinal following them all the way through the war. But they just they just ceased to exist. And mm-hmm. with them physically, the records ceased to exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I suspect that the same thing is, is true of the frontline units. Um, you know, when when you are when you're being destroyed, you have very little time to write down, you know, information about what you're doing, and you're you're very occupied. So, uh, as far as the representativeness goes, I think there's a study out there that that needs to be done about trying to point out or trying to figure out at the front you know, what are these guys doing when, with regards to anti-Jewish policy and the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I might suggest that one of the reasons that, that we don't have as much information is that um, most of, a lot of the fighting at that point takes place outside the, the former pale of settlement. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the demographics change. And so Jews are not as concentrated, they're not as numerous, they're in smaller numbers, and so they wouldn't be as encountered in the same way as they are in the rear areas. Mm-hmm. Well, let me
0: uh, make my final question this, and it really has to do as, uh, with 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 what what it is to be a historian. I think, and, and you know, books don't fall out of the sky; people write them. And we know a little bit about your background. You were in the military. Um, how, how did your own experience and knowledge of the military? How does it? What does it make you think about these people? How did it affect your judgment and understanding?
1: Well, um, I think one of the things. One of the disturbing things is, is how much, how much I recognized in the German army um, from my experience in the United States Army, and let me be clear to our to listeners and everyone that I'm not equating the two. Um, you know, one one was a, a, a genocidal organ that, that fought for a racist genocidal regime, and the other is, a, is an all volunteer, you know, ethically grounded force of a democracy. Um, but I mean, I mean more in just the sort of nuts and bolts of how militaries operate. You know, you have, you have the sergeants who are angry because the officers never listen to them. <laughs> you know, and and you have the first sergeant, the highest enlisted guy, who all he's ever wanted to be is a first sergeant, and he acts like a little little martinet or a little Napoleon. Um, and you know, you have you have the the lieutenant who doesn't really want to do anything, and so he sort of bows out. Um to some of these dynamics of individual units that I recognize from my own experience because I think they're they're universal. I think that the Roman legions probably had some of these same sort of dynamics. Um, and it's interesting to, it was interesting to me to sort of see how they played out in something as awful as the Holocaust, and that they you know that these things that are sort of innocuous or at least neutral, you know these 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 sorts of confrontations can have very real effects. Um, when applied in sort of a genocidal context, and when applied in, in the context of an organizational climate that that condones violence and condones murder and condones sort of racist behavior, and so I was very cognizant, sort of, of my background and and, and trying to think about think about this, you know, in terms of of, in, of relationships between individuals. I think one of the one of the drawbacks of people who uh, who studied the military, and I, I consider myself sort of really more of a social historian. And my, my topic was sort of in the military, but uh, people can tend to view military units as sort of individ- uh, as sort of these cohesive blocks. You know, like the company does this, the regiment does this. Uh, and my experience was in the military, and I think it's it is. I think it's a truism, and I think it's true here, is that the military units have cliques in them, just like anything else. And there are groups, you know, that nobody likes. There's the, the, you know, the crappy soldiers, who don't do their job very well and they're are lazy. And then there's the go-getters who really want to do the best they can. And then there's and then these groups don't always get along. And then you have the Catholics and the Protestants, and and so there are all kinds of different sort of schisms and 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 ways that these units can break down. And that when they put when they're put under the stress of of this, these sorts of situations, they don't behave as sort of this cohesive band of brothers, you know, group of people. They, they they have individual um, agency mm-hmm. um, and I think one thing that I really was cognizant of trying to portray in the book is that that they have choices they have very very real choices in what they're doing and they choose most often uh, to either be ambivalent or be complicit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and I think this is I think this is if if, if I I have something to say to the community of sort of holocaust dollars industry i think that's I think that's what I'm saying here. Um, I think we let we let off the hook too too many people for sort of this obedience to orders um, and, and i should I should add at the end here that you know I also in the book i'm trying I, I I do try to show that there are those who refuse yeah, you do and there are those who there are those who help mm-hmm. um, rescue might be too strong a word though it could be applied in a couple of cases um of course, these people are statistically insignificant. But they're vitally significant, I think, because they 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 give the exception to the rule, and they mm-hmm. show they show that you can do this. You can refuse to participate with with no negative repercussions. Um, with all intents and purposes, I mean, the negative repercussions are, you know, for example, the, the the captain who refused to carry out the order. It was essentially called a weak a weak individual. Words we can imagine, um, you know, misogynist kind of words, and 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 accused of sort of being a a weak individual, but I mean, as long as you can handle that, that's all that, that's all that he experienced. Um, many of the others just would say, I'm not, I don't want to shoot. I don't want to participate. And they would be reassigned someplace else. Mm -hmm. Of course, what's important also is that few, few of them refused sort of these ancillary positions, you know, in the guarding and the marching and the rounding up. So that I think is, is, is important. Um, but I think recognizing that these guys had choices, um, and that often they chose, from a certain perspective, geographically where they were on the ground is important to point out because um, I think sometimes we look at the military and we say, oh, this is this order-based organization, this obedience-based organization, and we let let people a little bit off the hook um, for doing what was hard but would be right. You know, it's hard to stand up to your peers, um, but it's it was, it's the right thing to do, and I think uh, many people might have seen that and just didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I should point out. Um, lastly, you know, one of the examples this is something I came across in earlier research. You know, the, the company commander goes up to his clerk and says, "I want you to go out and, and shoot shoes tomorrow." And he says, "You know, no. You've known me for three years now. You know, I'm not the kind of person that would do this, and I'm not going to do it." And and that's where that ended. Mm. Um, and if you, if you if you draw it out to its logical conclusion, you know, what is the what is the what is the army going to do? Are they going to are they going to literally bring charges against a guy who's going to say, "I'm sorry, I didn't want to shoot women and children," mm-hmm. and go through a court and have that all in the record? Right. No, they're not going to do that. So the, I think the men realized, many of them that there was room there was room to maneuver themselves. Maybe not to convince others, um, but there was certainly room to maneuver themselves into positions that they were comfortable with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and this applies to both more exploitation of Jews, and to those few who decided to rescue them or to help them. Once they sort of got a feeling for the terrain in which they were operating, they saw the areas in which they could either become more complicit or in a small number of cases, uh, help or kind of resist.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a very good point about not wanting to proceed in a court martial or judicial fashion, because you would have to talk about the orders that they refused.
1: Right. And it, it, goes, it becomes a matter of record at that yeah. point, you know, and, yeah. and it's it's one thing to sort of use your influence and your peer pressure to make someone do something, but it's quite another when you have to sort of right. lay that out in an argument. I mean, I, I kind of, this is one of my policies with my students is that if you have a, a disagreement with my grading, that I, I want you to then just write me a half page where you justify, you know, why you think I made a mistake and where you think I would change it. Right. And, that, that, that takes care of a lot of problems because the, the students who are like, well, but I should you get an A, you can't just write that down. you know, yeah. <laughs> And I think something similar sort of applies yeah, there.
0: Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, um, Waitman, we've taken up a lot of your time, actually more time than I inspe- expected that we would, but I, this, this topic is fascinating to me and I bet it's fascinating to our listeners. Uh, let me conclude our interview with our traditional final question, and that is what are you working on now?
1: Uh, well, it's a, it's a story of sort of one of those things that, uh, when you're doing research and you find something interesting and you don't use it, I found this this, this case back in um, 2007, 2006, uh, about a, a, a German maintenance unit that was operating in a, a camp called Yanovska, um, just outside of Lvov, Lviv or Lemberg, depending on which way you're coming at it. Um, and uh, so I went back and looked into that, and uh, my next project is is not about the German army, but it's going to be about um, this Janowska camp. Uh, it's a concentration camp, it's a forced labor camp, it's a slave labor camp, and it's also a a, a site of mass killings. Hmm. And it's a, a really fascinating place because uh, I think it has, and there's no major study that's been done on it, um, and it has, has a lot to offer us, I think, in terms of relationships between um, German businesses um, and the Nazi sort of slave labor regime. It tells us also a lot about uh, different policies and how uh, the, the Holocaust evolved in that particular region. Um, and uh, there's lots of uh, a lot of survivor testimony mm-hmm. about it. And I really want to get into that and sort of think about um, what we can learn. And again, at the local level, because I, you know, I, I think that's where we learn the most, and it's where History is most complex, and so mm-hmm. I'm going to try to apply that same sort of that same sort of focus to Yanovska. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it sounds fascinating, and I hope you come on the show when you're done with that book. Um, I'll be happy to. You have to be great. Um, we've been talking with Waitman Born today about his book, "Marching into Darkness: The Wehrmacht and the Holocaust in Belarus." Uh, let me uh, say thank you, Waitman, very much for being on the show. Uh,
1: Thanks for having me. This has been wonderful.
0: I'm glad you enjoyed it. And let me tell everyone that I'm Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I want to thank you all very much for listening and wish you a great week.